With support from the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, I'm Chris Damgan. And I'm Ryan Kruger. Welcome to Pints with Planners. On today's episode of Pints with Planners, we will be joined by Rick Stevens, president of the International Society of City and Regional Planners, better known as ISOCARP. He is here to discuss the creation of memorable community spaces. Here's Rick's background in his own words. I'm Rick Stevens, president of the International Society of City and Regional Planners. We're a global society of about 600, 650 planners with also with institutions in 80 countries around the world. We're affiliated with United Nations Habitat, UNESCO, uh, European Union, Global Planners Network, and an entire alphabet soup of, <laughs> of uh, planning uh, organizations around the world. Uh, very active right now, developing implementation for the new urban agenda. Uh, this conference is on smart communities, so this is a key topic for us, the idea of smart cities, smart communities. Uh, our other two major themes are urban resilience and disaster planning. Uh, we're looking at uh, a world that will be facing more severe, more frequent disasters, and we feel that urban planners need to be proficient and, and able to respond to those. And our last theme that we're developing for 2018 will be global climate change action planning, which is wonderful to be in Portland this year because Portland and Oregon have already taken great steps in developing climate action plans. Before we begin this episode, some context on the show format is important to share with our first-time listeners. Pints with Planners is recorded in a live setting that captures the nuances of conversations over a pint. These broadcasts can include background conversations or other background sounds, as our mobile studio allows us to visit a variety of locations to meet with our guests. As you listen to this podcast, Imagine you are sitting with us, joining in our discussion of the global challenges we are witnessing on our street corners. Thank you for tuning in for this broadcast of Pints with Planners. We now join our conversation with Rick Stevens about creating memorable community spaces. This session was recorded in October 2017 in Portland at the 53rd ISOCARP Congress. Thank you for joining us, Rick. We start off all of our broadcasts with icebreakers for our guests. I was curious, are you a fan of the city-building computer game SimCity? I've never played the game, but I love the fact that it was developed by planners. And I don't know if you knew this, but SimCity, uh, about 15 years ago, actually had a planning commissioner's handbook that was so well written that it was used as a model for planning commissioners in many cities. I did not realize that. Oh, yeah. wow, that's an outstanding. So, and I want to share one little detail. You edit as you wish, but go ahead. Uh, two years ago, I was invited to Japan to attend the International Simulation and Gaming Association in in uh, Kyoto, Japan, and my presentation was based on planning games and history of planning games in the U.S. and worldwide. And SimCity was one of the, the primary examples of planning games, but it's not the most modern. Oh, okay. Well, what is the most modern? I think a, a, plan, a game called Urban City is, is much more modern and high-tech, but SimCity has got a, a cult following worldwide, and 
the Japanese and, and Chinese and other Asian visitors at Isaga, that's the name of this uh, invention, all knew SimCity. So my icebreaker for you, Rick, has absolutely nothing to do with any context. Uh, I was just going to ask you, since we're coming up on Halloween, what your favorite Halloween candy would be. What's your guilty pleasure that ooh, uh, as you get ooh, a trick-or-treater ooh. at you, <laughs> yeah. you're going to like reach in and eat all the Reese's Pieces? What, are you, what, what would be... Uh, Whoppers. Wow, what a cool icebreaker. I don't know. You know, I think it's a comfort food. My childhood, which was another era, another decade, another century. Abba Zabba. Oh. Really? <laughs> Abba Zabba. Okay. It's been a little while since I've <laughs> yeah, seen yeah, one it's... of those. I don't know. What about you, Chris? What would be yours? It's been evolving. Ha- have you uh, indulged evolving. in Abba Zabba recently? <laughs> I, I cannot say I have. Um, <laughs> I will tell you this, um, growing up, my, my parents are, are German, uh, and uh, occasionally my, when my dad would have to go back to Germany for business, he would bring back uh, what they call Kinder, Kinder chocolate. Oh, chocolate. I know those, yeah. And uh, there are a couple of different varieties. Uh, probably the mo- most famous ones are uh, these chocolate eggs, and oftentimes they were hollow and they would contain a toy inside of them. And I swore it off one time, I think I was eight or nine, I opened one up and it was empty. You want to talk about gut wrenching, uh, life changing experience, man? That that's what happens. So I've been pretty much on the uh, Reese's Pieces uh, M and M kick. That, since that then. would be a kind of a startling, kind of shocking experience yeah. to open up the candy bar and that's there's nothing in yeah. there. So not really a Halloween candy per se, but uh, orange colored, partially. You know, so whatever. Well, I'm going to give a little bit of a, an answer that's a little bit tangential as well. I'm going to give a plug to our local Salt and Straw here in uh, Portland. I don't know if you've been to Salt and Straw. Is it ice cream? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They I have know. every Halloween. They do all different types of flavors. Every holiday, they do different flavors. And they have this candy copia now that they have. <laughs> And it is all house-made candies, Whoppers, Reese's, all kinds of different things mixed into the, their caramel ice cream, and it is outstanding. So that was my indulgence for Halloween this year. And now you know why Ryan's so hyper all the time. Ah, there you go. It's That's on sugar. my list of things to do now. <laughs> I would absolutely recommend it. They, their Halloween flavors, or excuse me, their uh, Thanksgiving flavors are a little bit of a departure from the norm. They'll have turkey in some of their... Actual ice cream flavor, stuffing. Uh huh. It is, it's an interesting, I, I don't know if I'd recommend going for a full scoop, but for a taste, it's kind of interesting. Well, coming back now to some of the uh, yes, topics please, at hand. <laughs> Turkey and ice cream. No, I, we no. want to first, you've mentioned a little bit about some of the goals of Isocarp and, and really kind of del- uh, delved into what you guys are working on. What is Isocarp uh, in relation to uh, current urban planning here in the U.S.? How do they fit together? We have a, a very close relationship with the American Planning Association. Uh, in fact, I think one of the reasons Cynthia Bowen, uh, the president, came was to meet and, and work with Isocarp. Uh, we're partners in an organization called the Global Planners Network. So we collaborate on a variety of things on an international scale. Uh, Cynthia's predecessor uh, and myself and many others from APA uh, were in Quito uh, for the uh, Habitat 3, and we did many joint programs. So for next year, we're working on the World Urban Forum that will be in Kuala Lumpur in the end of February, and APA and ISOCARP are collaborating on this program coming up. Outstanding. 
Um, and you know, Rick, you, you are here in Oregon too. How, how uh, did you come about wanting to participate in a more global conversation of planning and what lessons have you learned that you could share with uh, local planning practitioners such as Ryan and myself and, and uh, probably a big chunk of our listeners? Wow, that's huge. Uh, it, it was partly by accident that I got involved in working internationally, but I related to your story about Kinder Chocolate because I went to school in Germany when I was young. So when I came back and became a practicing planner, I was really curious that other countries had different perspectives and approaches to solving essentially all the same problems. So since 1998, I've been a member of Isocarp and trying to learn things primarily that we could import to the U.S., and, of course, things that the U.S. can export overseas. So uh, it's just an amazing array of things. This whole conference is a, about sharing. Uh, they, they want to learn about the Portland experience, which is famous worldwide, sure. Portland planning. and uh, I, I shouldn't always say Portland, the Oregonian experience, because it's really Cascadia. It's really Portland, Vancouver, and Seattle. We have a, a style and a way of planning that's unique to the world that, that's admired. So... Yes, there's like too many things to discuss on things to share, but it's not just the larger things, as I think we're going to get to later, but also the smaller detail things are amazing to share. So uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful that, that we had the event here and they got to meet you and, your, and our colleagues in Oregon. We've definitely, I, I can't speak for everyone in this conference, but I know Chris and I have really uh, visited extensively on how much we've gained from just having some of the conversations that we've had, and it's been very memorable in that regard. You mentioned there that we're talking about solving all the same problems and sharing information. You know, our subject of our episode today is creating memorable community spaces. What are some of the most memorable community spaces that you've encountered during your career, and how are different uh, communities across the country trying to solve the problem of creating those memorable spaces that we can all enjoy? I'm very lucky to have worked in overseas uh, projects for uh, the last 20 years or so, and uh, spanning such things as post-civil wars and post-hurricanes. But I would say on a large scale, maybe the most amazing project was the city of Wuhan, China. It's a population of 14 million people. So imagine a city that's it's just a city, not a region or, or a metropolitan area. that is f- almost four times the population of the entire state of Oregon. And they actually had a planning vision for the city with nature that was rather phenomenal. It was a way to have the citizens connected to nature through this idea of um, sort of uh, radial uh, connections with nature. So on a large scale. But I wanted to, what I mentioned earlier is what I wanted to share with you is to scale things that are relevant and applicable to Oregon. You can't look at Shanghai or New York but there are small-scale things that our cities can do. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a local Beaverton guy. Our cities can do small things that are equally memorable. So uh, I'll give you an example of a little small project that I saw um, here in the U.S. was for children, which I think is another topic for you, is they see the world at a different perspective, not just from their age and experience, but from their height. So I saw one time a city had designed a fountain where from the, from the height of a child of about a meter, say uh, 40 inches or so, the child could see that there were little buttons underneath the fountain, little brass buttons, and so the child could push those, and when the child pushed the buttons, a frog 
a frog shot water out of its mouth. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's fun to talk about master planning at the scale of 14 million people or, or the, the inspirational things of a post-disaster, like I worked on Cancun after Hurricane Wilma. But these little, little city comforts, like a fountain like that for children, those are the things people remember most. Or a, a city that was a medieval city in um, a Croatia, mm-hmm. which had gone through a civil war. I was there as a post-Civil War disaster planner. And the city had, in the Middle Ages, built small, down the spouts on the outside of the buildings led to little basins. And these basins were watering basins for cats and dogs in the city. Wow. From the year 1600-something. So it's a little city comforts, or sometimes you can hide things in cities. I'm trying to, the cities I'm working with here in Oregon overseas, I'm saying make little, we would call them Easter eggs, little hidden things for people to discover that make make life special. So Think of Greenville when he says that with the mice. Absolutely. In Greenville, South Carolina, public art uh, turned out to be a little urban adventure for kids where a uh, local bronze sculptor created little mice and, and it was a poem that they and, had yeah right and and basically uh kids uh, along with their parents could go on a treasure hunt uh down oh. the main street of, of greenville one of the most beautiful main streets in america and it did wonders and it's a quite the attraction it's and, still one of my most memorable experiences going back to greenville i still look for the mice when sure. i go back there this this is Okay, I'm touched. <laughs> no, this is. I think this is so meaningful to do things like that. You know, in the lobby here at the conference center, we have a, one of the cows. Do you know the, the, the cows that they have from the cow parade? Yes. Well, the original people that designed the cows on parade were Isocart members. Is that right? Yes. Oh, wow. In, okay. in, in, in Switzerland. Uh, in fact, June and I knew one of them very well. He's passed away since then. But that was the beauty of that was you had public art, charity, charitable donations and organizations, local artists, the adventure of, of discovering the city combined with the sense of discovery. I mean, it doesn't it just doesn't get any better than that. And that's really exciting to hear that, uh, you know, that those types of experiences are happening more broadly. And, and it does seem like something that we need to take into account. Chris is actually in our city. We're working on a town center update, and and I know that for all of us uh, that are involved in that, we want to create a more memorable experience across the whole of the population. Sure, and 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 you, to your point, you mentioned city comforts. There is actually a book out there. It's yeah. almost like a design handbook by, by um, Zucker. Zucker, yeah. yeah. And if if you don't have it, it's a really small. It's it's a smaller book. It, it's not a high cost, but uh, it it has a number of good tips and tricks. And and um, it's it's I think any planner should have it on their bookshelf for sure. Um, Kind of on that same topic, you mentioned last year uh, in Sydney with an interview with Urban Synergies Group that communities should attempt to create playful environments. And I think you kind of touched on that with with the uh, frog water fountain idea. Um, Can you highlight some additional projects maybe that you've seen where the playfulness or the mystery behind that uh, is for children of all ages? Uh, there, there are many cities now ex- experimenting with the idea of planning to make cities more engaging and more interactive. Uh, the city of Stechen in Poland has a, a plan where they painted a red line throughout the city on the sidewalk. And this red line is a path to follow, and it has numbers at places. 
So essentially the numbers are historic buildings, but occasionally for other events, for children, they follow the red line to explore the city, learn new things about the city and so on, and they have activities there. So the other feature that I think is amazing in terms of that is uh, we should consider is cities in Europe are re-examining street design to make streets less, obviously less auto-oriented, but streets that are designed for what we were calling, what we're calling now festival streets, streets that are designed for uh, temporary or full-time closure, and a variety of ways of rethinking sharing space. So if, if I was going to advocate something for us right now on this, I would say we should look at the models that they have in England throughout Central Europe on shared space. These are streets where automobiles, people, bicyclists, all sh have equal rights. They're all welcome, but they have equal rights. So uh, in Holland, they started this, what's called Voner. Yep. Exactly. So, but it, now it's a European concept everywhere, and we need to we need to import this idea. And how? Sorry if I may dovetail, Ryan, but uh, how do we convince policymakers here in this country that may be tied with typical solutions that are dealt with engineering solutions about how fast a car can move through level of traffic? How do we change that paradigm of thinking uh, to convince local policymakers that there's wisdom behind these ideas? I'm pausing. I'm, I'm pausing because <laughs> because there there is a different sensibility about personal responsibility between the United States and Europe and Asia, South America and Africa. So in the U.S., uh, you know, if someone is injured by tripping on a cobblestone or if the street isn't, you know, sanitized for your convenience in every possible way, there are liability issues. Whereas in most other developed countries, there's a higher level of civic and personal responsibility. So this is one huge handicap for issues like that. But for shared space, there is a city that has been trying to work towards that, and ironically because of the German model. So Mount Angel mm -hmm. was from settlers from Bavaria, this Engelberg, mm -hmm. and when my University of Oregon students and I were working there, they were willing to start exploring the idea of a shared street. Uh, it, the city manager has since moved, so that idea is probably dormant now. But we've even, uh, I will be showing at 2 o'clock uh, some photos of converting Mount Angel into Bavarian-style streets and so on. And, but uh, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult concept to sell, exactly as you say. And most of our problem, and I'm going to rant, you can cut, cut this as you will, much of our problem is actually with public works and, and the this, this standardization of streetscape design. So 40 feet paving, 5 feet sidewalk, street tree 30 feet on center. Whatever the model is, it's, it's so generic now that, that if you dozed off right now uh, and, and woke up in a coma in most southwestern or western cities, you wouldn't know where you were for maybe days because there are Starbucks every other corner, 15-foot setback, 30-foot maximum height. Whatever the generic zoning formula is, we have, we have sanitized our cities to the point where we are losing sense of place. Yeah, End of rant. Places. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> no, wait, I, wait, wait. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I think that, no, I, I, that's very much on point. And I... 
the sense of placelessness that I experience in a lot of communities that I've grown up in is disheartening at best. Yeah, and yeah. it's definitely one of those things that as we look at being practitioners, we want to think about that in the lessons that we've learned in the places that we've lived. And, you know, hearing someone who's had more experience internationally and more experience in this discipline reiterate those uh, t- points, it's really, it really hits home. And you mentioned in your opening about resiliency, and we, drifting back to that topic as we talk about memorable community spaces, how do we integrate resilience into creating memorable community spaces so that if we do happen to have some unforeseen, well, maybe not unforeseen, but unfortunate hazard uh, or unfortunate disaster befall our communities, that we don't have to worry about necessarily rebuilding them uh, from scratch? Well... I'm just glad you're even asking the question because I think in the U.S. we really don't we don't really put disaster planning in the forefront or even in the mindset of the of the city government and certainly not the citizens. So for many countries that experience much many more frequent and severe disasters, like Japan is the key one, there is a different kind of thinking in general about disaster preparedness. So after the Tohoku disaster, the Japanese rebuilt within months. And there was no concept of victimhood. There was no concept of, you know, we're, we're, we're falling apart. Whereas Haiti hasn't recovered today. Uh, which, so it's a mindset. The U.S. mindset, we are vulnerable, highly vulnerable. Only one out of seven citizens has any kind of a kit. And I mean you know, a pack of matches and a bottle of water or something, you know. So that needs to change first. But second for design, more to the point of design, is to give you some ideas, our spaces should also have at least the ability to be adapted for post-disaster. So flexibility, we've discussed with some cities having an area for a helicopter to land. Many many cities don't have a single space large enough to accommodate a helicopter landing. Or spaces or caches for emergency supplies and equipment. So in Japan, I'm working. Actually, you're interviewing uh, Hidehiko Kanaga, I think. We've been, we've reached out. We I'm going to go visit with him today. He's Sounds here. like next time around, we're probably okay. going to catch him. He's, yeah, he's coming back next year. So yep. he's working with disaster planning for Japan. But for example, in their parks, their urban parks, they usually have an underground cache of generic things for post-disaster, including something that's really critical, and that's hand water pumps. Hmm. Because in the event of no electricity, it also essentially means no water. Right. So I think we have to redo our thinking, and then once we've redone our thinking, we can rethink our spaces. So, sorry, another rant. No, no. Preach on, brother. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah. I'm tired, so you're like pushing buttons. And I'm, <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, the, the resiliency uh, that you're talking about, and a lot of our community spaces here in, in this country really aren't adequately served to that. In a way, you're, you're looking at retrofit. And, and one of the questions we wanted to ask you, too, deals with the retrofitting of community spaces as generations go by and either new expectations, new technologies, and changing demographics can affect place. Uh, what are some tips maybe that you've seen from these memorable spaces that are effectively timeless, what are some lessons learned that we, as we plan for or as we uh, uh, maintain our existing community spaces for the future, what are some lessons we can learn to make sure that these spaces still act as spaces years down the road? 
Wow, that's a great a great question. We're diving Thanks, deep Chris. on you, Rick. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. No, it's it. That's a really thoughtful thing because we're seeing uh, demographic changes in all communities, and so the public spaces that were designed for one demographic segment are no longer relevant for other future segments. So I would say for for communities in terms of it would be difficult for me to suggest kinds of things to do design, but I would make one generic thing is make spaces that are programmable. In other words, don't design a public space that is that is limits itself to a certain type of uh, venue or something. So we mentioned the book David Zucker's City Comforts. Mm-hmm. I will throw another book in there. It's old, but it's it changed my way of thinking. Willard, William White's The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces. It should be required reading for people on, on city planning that, that work with public spaces. So the, the ultimate answer, though, is collaborative design. Is the ultimate answer is when we're rethinking spaces, when we're redesigning spaces, we should definitely have the broadest group possible involved in doing that. So you see here we have the young planning professionals from all over the world. I think there were 25 countries participating in that. But we also discussed with them that they're also a very small slice. So when June and I work with other cities, we often try to have children involved, which goes back to your theme of children, mm-hmm. because they, they, they see things differently, and it will be the space that they will inherit. But the other and we want many groups to be involved. I'll throw one out that is almost sad. We don't ever have medical doctors involved in our planning for those kinds of things. And yet, what shapes the health of the community more, the physical health of the community, more than the public spaces? So when we work in Japan on large-scale projects, they have medical doctors, physicians, part of the team that plans the space because this is the, this is the outdoor health of the people. But the group that I, I like to include that I think it hits with you guys as well in terms of, of making spaces really memorable is artists. Yes. Because they're usually the afterthought for design. And the result of that is maybe okay, but it's usually plunk art. You know, it's where you just take something and you drop it in there. It has nothing to do with the context. It, has, it may have nothing to do with the, the intent of the use and so on. And if the artist is not a local artist, it may not, have any, it may not speak to the people that are there. So I would say the best thing you could do is have artists engaged from the very beginning. It doesn't have to be something like a, a, a half a million dollar sculpture. It could be something as simple as kids making handprints in, in, uh, in, in the cement. It could be something as simple as a, a, a space where you could have a temporary art display. I think for, for re- retrofitting spaces, making sure that public art or the culture can be infused in that as it changes. And that's I just now you can see why I can give a lecture at the <laughs> UO for like two hours straight. <laughs> My poor students. <laughs> I, I would be engaged, and I, I can tell you that you know all of these topics for us are very, very much something that we want to think about, especially as we're trying to reprogram or retrofit or even consider new community spaces. Now you talked when you came in today about some of the drone applications that you're working with. We, talked, uh, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of the technologies that you may have seen that are really uh, impactful on creating community spaces and memorable community spaces. Maybe you can visit on some of those for a little bit and kind of uh, yeah. tell us where we might want to look for the next, you know, in our next design project. Well, I'm a huge advocate of the development of smart cities, and 
there are a lot of definitions, but essentially it's merging the technology with the with the with the soft side. And a lot of people think, oh, it's all about having IBM or Siemens come in, and that's not it at all. That's not it at all. It, it in fact, even cities in developing countries will become smart cities. It's inevitable. It's inevitable for a lot of reasons. For one, is uh, Congressman Blumenauer said, just having phone, cell phones. The penetration of cell phones throughout Africa is phenomenal, mm-hmm. in the urban, especially in the urban areas. So more specific to the technologies related to um, uh, that are being applied to cities and something I think is really relevant to yours and, and, and cities in Oregon is in the, in the emergence of autonomous vehicles. And Congressman Blumenauer I was surprised. I shouldn't say surprisingly because I, I think he's quite brilliant, but he was very perceptive because there are going to be externalities about this that we cannot foresee. And so I'm very involved, June and I are very involved in autonomous vehicles of all kinds. We do drones, but also driverless cars and boats. Oregon is building, we're, Portland is building autonomous boats already. We've launched two that were built in Portland. They're out in the Pacific Ocean now. Not a, No one on them is doing a variety of things. One climate, one military oriented. But So Autonomous vehicles are going to change our future in ways we can't see. So your community, my community, we need to start thinking about what that might be. So it could go either direction. We could have an an increase in car usage because now it's less expensive, it's more open to people, or we could have a complete change in in the way we think about parking. If autonomous vehicles are always driving from user to user, they never need to be parked. So it could go in two different directions. What does it mean for a blind person to be able to call and have transportation? What does it mean for, for the elderly, for, the, for the, the, the infirm, for young people, if there's the opportunity to just call and now have transportation? It may reshape the way we think about our cities. So drones is a little piece of that in a different way. We're using drones with cities now. We're using drones to do things like photo simulations for cities. We've done that for like a dozen cities or so, using drones to do uh, heat, for example, things like heat assessment. Mm-hmm. Use a infrared camera, and you can see where heat's being wasted. Well, the drone itself, our drone is like about $1,500. But if you assess like a city hall building and you do a infrared vision and you find heat leakage in the hall, that will save the city maybe three to $8,000 a year in heating, cooling costs. So, and then the other one I think you touched on earlier was the big one for us is we're really focusing on emergency services. Because if the city has a disaster, drones can play a key thing. So we're coordinating right now in Oregon with the um, REMTEC, that's the Regional Emergency Management, use of, use of drones. And we'll start with the RDPO, Regional Disaster Preparedness Organization, to begin infusing drones. Because, for example... Uh, search and rescue, an obvious one, but uh, many other applications for, for drones for emergency services. We teach a course on that at uh, Portland Community College. That's a great sorry, resource. Sorry, I get another <laughs> Plug away. And, and we'd love to come to your city. We, we, we give talks all over Oregon about it. We've got your contact, and we will be following up with you on that aspect of 
uh, application and we'd love to learn a little bit more about how we might be able to integrate some of those lessons with yeah. drones and others and autonomous vehicles. I know autonomous vehicles has been one that's been very highly talked about. Uh, we are actually supported in partnership with the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association and OAPA, ISOCARP, they both offer a lot of resources. If people are more interested in creating memorable community spaces, as we've already talked about some resources there, or autonomous vehicles or other subjects we've covered today, what are some uh, areas that you might recommend, or what are some resources outside of planning that you really go to that might speak to some of those uh, topics that we've covered today? So we have a website, of course. Yeah. It's uh, isocarp, isocarp.org, and it has tons of materials on that. And at this conference, we've actually produced a business card, USB, that also has a lot of materials. And we, so we, we're, we publish documents we're creating this coming year a repository of documents. For, for other organizations, there are many. Uh, I'll tell you an organization that I'm fond of for researching materials is the Royal Town Planning Institute. This With is Prince the, Charles? Pardon? With Prince Charles's involvement? Well, yeah, he has yeah. historically been very active right. in, in town planning in England, and they, they, they do a, many publications, many uh, position papers, many things that are very much in sync with... U.S. styles of planning. And the, the second uh, organization that is also quite a leader in all of these topics is ECLEI. So I-C-L-E-I, and their website is just immense database of materials. Uh, ECLEI is the Local Governments for Sustainability. So I don't know how the acronyms don't match, but... <laughs> We, I, I think we're going to have a conversation okay. with some folks from that group here oh, in a little oh, bit. Great. And they may fill but us you, in a little bit more. <laughs> but E-Clay and Isocarp and some of these other directors are developing parallel programming for smart cities. Um, sure. And as we wrap up, Rick, uh, and, and we really appreciate your time. We know you're a busy man. And thank you, June, also for thank you, sure yes, thank you, June. on the schedule. Um, are there any other topics, uh, emerging topics you see in the planning profession or in the community development profession as a whole uh, that we should be talking about? Um, you mentioned children up at, at the top of our interview as one that we might want to focus on. Are there others that uh, sort of rise to the top uh, that you would say, hey, you guys probably want to get some interviews with some folks on these types of topics? Oh, there's yeah, there we're still begin, there's still right? people available today. But <laughs> so our four our four main themes are are going to be our smart cities, uh, disaster preparedness, urban resiliency combined together, um, the new urban agenda, and lastly climate action planning. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, with our federal government. Um, Yes. So, but I would yes. I would say, especially with the European Union, they have a, an action actually an organization for the continent that's doing uh, uh, focusing on this. It's the European Environmental Agency, and uh, they don't have any. We don't have anyone from the here today, but they have a website. There's amazing resources on what uh, the European Union is doing for that. So those are our four themes. Uh, if you're talking about an emerging theme. That's the one that we discussed here at the conference. We met with UNICEF, and we had been talking with them last year, and we want to, this coming year, start doing more things with children. Uh, Sheeper mentioned right to the city. That's partly ref referring to the children's right to the city. And then one of our colleagues is uh, uh, children's right for, to be happy, right to, right to play. He's developing this as right to play. 
So our new programs that we're working with our students at the University of Oregon will be going to cities and making sure that the cities are places for children to grow and play and Thank you so much for your time today, Rick. You guys made this fun. Absolutely. It was fun, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. On the next episode of Pints with Planners, we will bring you further discussion of community placemaking with current American Planning Association President Cynthia Bone. To learn more about Rick or any of our guests, visit the Pints with Planners Facebook page as well as the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association's webpage. There, you can find our show information under the News and Media tab. Thank you once again for joining us for this episode of Pines with Planners. And please, as always, plan responsibly. Additional support for Pints with Planners was provided by the Oregon Chapter of the American Planning Association. PWP's theme music was written by Chris Lassane. Haley Schiller is our graphic designer. Production and editing was handled by me, your host, Ryan Kruger. The views and opinions expressed on this episode are that of our guests and your hosts, and may not necessarily reflect those of the Oregon Chapter of the American Planning Association, the City of Troutdale, or any other affiliates of this program. If you have comments or questions, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or send us an email at pintswithplanners at gmail.com. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of Pints with Planners. <laughs>